Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu Marcus, and this is our first podcast of 2016. Exciting. A new year. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope this is a very healthy and fulfilling year that we have in front of us. It's going to be an interesting year with all these elections going on here in our country. And uh, we shall see. Meanwhile, I have some news. It's a little bit sad on one hand and happy on another. It's a sweet and sour deal, you know what I mean? And that is that David Silver, my erstwhile partner on my Mind Rolling for the last couple of years, uh, is going to embark on a very important mission, and that is he's had a book in him for many years that's been wanting to come out, and it is now going to. He is taking a sabbatical from uh, podcasting and mind-rolling, uh, to write this book, and uh, so there's the happy and the sad. Sad that I'll be missing my partner here while he does this, and happy for him because uh, David's a great writer, and this is going to be quite a book, uh, basically sharing his life experiences with so many, many different amazing, amazing people and experiences he's had on this, uh, which you have um, heard from these stories that he shared on uh, Mind Rolling over the last couple of years. So you can tell, if you've been an avid listener, that this will be something else, this book. So uh, we're wishing David the very best to... uh, to complete this book, and we'll just see as we go along here. He's going to see just how uh, this this is obviously a, a major project, and we'll see how, how he does with it in terms of him coming back uh, sooner than later. So that's the big news, everybody. And uh, in his absence, I will be inviting other guest hosts to just rap with me about the day-to-day life and experiences and uh, thoughts. Uh, we'll get Duncan Trussell is going to join me on some podcasts and Mirabai Bush and George Pitagorsky and uh, I'm going to ask a couple of other folks. David Nickturn is on my mind and Danny Goldberg who has a, a podcast called Rock and Rolls on MindPod Network. Uh, and a few other very interesting people who we will get. And then other than that, we'll do our usual interviews with folks that uh, come to mind or have new offerings that we want to share with you, books and so on and so forth. So uh, that is all of the news that's fit for Mind Rolling in uh, 2016. Coming up is an interview that I did with uh, a gentleman named Reggie Ray, who's uh, an eminent spiritual teacher in this country. Uh, He was one of 
Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche's first American students met him way back in May of 1970. And of course, many of you know because how, of how much we have talked about Trungpa Rinpoche on this podcast. I think you know who he is, an amazing, amazing teacher. Reggie uh, was part of the original Naropa f- uh, faculty uh, and in that great opening year with Ram Dass in 1974 when he was included. And uh, Reggie is unusual. Uh, uh, he is, of course, incredibly steeped in uh, Tibetan Buddhist wisdom, uh, but he also he studied Jungian uh, uh, psychology. He's uh, he's worked with an African shaman uh, named uh, Malidome Some. Uh, he's explored somatic teachings, somatic uh, which is uh, relating to the body. It's the interrelatedness of mind, body, spirit. It's uh, amazing meditation that he teaches that I can. Uh, that can be uh, very, very effective for many people, especially if uh, you have trouble connecting through your body. I mean, of course, many people do yoga, and that's certainly part of it. Um, But especially through meditation. Uh, He's got uh, a meditation he does at the end of this podcast, by the way, that's uh, super. So... um, uh, Reggie also does his own podcast on his site, dharmaocean.org, and uh, you can tune in there. We're going to try and see if Reggie will uh, share more podcasts with us at MindPod as well. Um, he has a book uh, that uh, is wonderful that I got called Touching Enlightenment, which includes the somatic-based uh, meditation and philosophy. You can get that on Amazon, by the way. And uh, we, we also recommend... It's interesting because I was reading this great book, which is kind of a memoir from a, a guy named Jam- Jeremy Hayward, uh, who wrote a book about Trungpa and his experiences with him over, the, over many years, also from that same time which is when I uh, met him, Ramdas and I and others of the uh, Nimkaroli Baba Maharaji Satsang, when we came back from India with particularly Ramdas uh, and I and a few other people in uh, the spring of 1972 after being in India for a year and a half, um, we would go down to Tale of the Tiger, which was this uh, retreat center that Trumpa started, which was just over the Vermont border, because I lived in Quebec, right near that border, and Ramdas would visit, and we would go down, which was just about an hour and a half, and and that's where I first met uh, Trumpa Rinpoche. So, a little bit of dissecting lines here with um, with Reggie and and of course this man Jeremy Hayward. Um, a, a, a very, very excellent book that you can get on Amazon as well. Um, and we need you to continue to uh, bookmark Amazon in order for us to get those few shekels, as we call them. Every time you buy something on Amazon, go through that portal, we get a little bit, which goes a long way to helping support uh, Mind Rolling and Mind Pod Network. It's turned out that uh, 
we have announced before that we have the Heart Mind app, this amazing app through which you'll be able to access everything that we're doing, uh, uh, as well as uh, these uh, beautiful push notifications. In other words, you'll be able to line up different meditations at different part of the day, parts of the day that you would like to have them. You will get notified. You'll get notified with these little uh, Vine-like, if you know what Vine is, that app that's got five, ten-second uh, uh, messages. Ours are going to be wake-up calls, is what we're going to call them, um, from all of the different teachers that are on MindPod Network. So that app is uh, quite amazing. We, of course, have the beta version, and we've been working hard on it. Uh, and it's been a little bit more complex than we thought it was going to be. Of course, you always think that. And But we are very close. We are uh, and absolutely needing your support uh, to continue to be able to pay the developers and all of that. So please do consider that and consider uh, keep doing the... Uh, you know, the recurring donations are important because that makes us solid so that every month we know we're going to get X amount to be able to pay for for the app and the editing and uh, the content that we're developing. The Life and Balance course is nearing its completion as well, and I think that's going to be a valuable offering for everybody. So please do continue the support and... Um, and look to a uh, a great new year from MindPod. We're we're going to be adding on uh, more podcasters and thought leaders, and um, and just uh, arranging all sorts of new initiatives to really enhance everyone's ability to get through the day to day, which appears to be a little bit more difficult day to day with what's going on in this world. So, with uh, no further adieu, as I like to say, here is my chat with Reggie Ray on Mind Rolling. Hi everyone, this is Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu Marcus. David Silver is away today, and I have the pleasure of hanging out and talking to Reggie Ray. Reggie is... Uh, a wonderful Buddhist teacher who has been... Uh, we have some uh, paths that we've crossed, actually, Reggie. Reggie and I just met, and so we're just kind of getting to know each other a little bit. And uh, I, I read, uh, uh, of course, Reggie is a direct student of uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who you have heard, everybody out there, you know who that is because we refer to him quite a bit on the podcast. And uh, and Reggie, I believe you uh, first met him in 1970, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because there's some cross-currents, because uh, I also met him around that time. Um, I was in my, uh, my Ph.D. studies at the University of Chicago in 1969, and I found a book called Born in Tibet. And I read it, and you know how th those things happen to you? A little light went on. And it said, this is your teacher. And I'd been looking for a teacher for a long, long time. And so uh, I got in touch and I heard he was on the way to the United States. And he showed up in Bern Bern Barnett, Vermont 
uh, I think in early 1970, and I was poised. So the minute he landed, I got in my little Volkswagen and I drove up to Barnett and I met with him. And uh, at that time, uh, he had just come from Canada, just gotten his visa. And uh, it's interesting, you know, in the meeting, it was a foregone conclusion. I think on both sides, we were going to work together. It, it was hardly even discussed, uh, even though we'd never met. But uh, what blew me away was he he was able to not not tell me what was going on in my mind, but he was able to voice what I was about to think about and what I needed to think about, but I couldn't think about. And uh, I realized this guy's the real deal. So I said, I want to be your student. He goes, okay. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. Tell us just a little bit. We always ask our uh, guests that that we have on, what were some of the triggers or transformational points when you were a youth and and moving into uh, that time, I suppose, in 1970, you were in your probably what tw- mid 20s or something early 20s something like that yeah what were the triggers that uh, that led you to even want to meet somebody like Trumpa Rinpoche well i had a um, a kind of a strange history and one that isolated me really from the rest of the culture uh, which was that uh, you know from an age of probably 7 or 8 years old I had, I had discovered Tibet through National Geographics that my parents had around. And when I saw the pictures about Tibet, I knew those were my people. And my people were not these uh, white people that I was living with. So I spent uh, many, many agonizing years um, trying to figure it out because, of course, at that time, no one even knew what Tibet was. And my high school friends, when I got to high school, I mean, I couldn't even bring it up. So <laughs> that, that really got me going. And uh, when I was in college from, from late high school, I wanted to go to India. So I, I went because I wanted to go to Tibet. So when I was in college, I dropped out after my second year and I went to India and I went to Nepal and I tried to go to Tibet, but it was closed. So for me, it, it wasn't a matter of... Uh, you know, discovering something, it was a matter of trying to fulfill something that was already in me that was really making me crazy because I couldn't connect any of what I was doing with the culture around me. Mm. Right. Familiar story to me. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm sure it is. Yeah. Uh, I I was fortunate, though. Uh, One of the things that saved me, because I had many years, as you're describing, of what in the heck am I doing here and what is this about? That's right. Um, I was really into music, and and there was a couple of occasions when I I had some minor, shall we say, transformation sitting. uh, In in this case, I was uh, 16 years old and happened to get into a John Coltrane uh, a concert, a concert actually was in a, in a small club in Montreal where I'm from and he played my favorite things. And, and, and that to me is my, I actually went into a a state that I had not experienced before, uh, that, uh, stuck with me to at least advise me that there is something else beyond the thinking mind and senses and so on and so forth. So that that kind of saved me because that led me on. I, I kept questioning and moving in the direction of of trying to find answers at that point. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating um, example and important because 
it illustrates that spirituality, the way we're all thinking about it and we've experienced it, isn't, it's not a religious thing. It's a human thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And it can literally come out of anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it does. Yeah, exactly. And we all, and that's one of the things, you know, I, I talked to you just before we went on about uh, everybody, all the folks that are listening right now and their interest in uh, do we have to do and become part of a particular, um, shall we say, uh, Catholic. Uh, attitude towards any religion or any um, spiritual teaching? Is there a way for us to get what we need to be more balanced, kinder to each other, um, and be able to walk our daily lives uh, without having to uh, submit to wearing robes or being in caves or, or any of that? And I think that's a really important uh, aspect of what we try and uh, feature here, that yeah. it is not necessary. There, there's something that you uh, say, uh, by the way, everybody, Reggie has a wonderful book called Touching en Enlightenment, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it as, as we go along. Um, and uh, it's something that I would recommend to everybody. Uh, but in the book, you talk about to be human is to be spiritual. There is no separation between spirituality and life itself. Everything is learning, opening, and moving forward, even when the opposite seems to be the case. This leads to a kind of fundamental and boundless optimism about what human life is and why we are here. Can you talk more about that? I think that is so essential. Well, to come back to what you were talking about, um, you know, of course, a lot of us have those questions. Do we need a, a, any kind of formal religion or formal tradition in order to develop as humans? And I would actually turn it around the other way and say, uh, you, you know, to get what we need in order to make the journey. And what I would say is that what we need to make the journey is already in us and it's implicit in our bodies and in our minds. It's, it's a kind of um, to me, the most fundamental of all human imperatives is the what we call the spiritual journey, which is to live more fully and openly and completely. And the question to me is, do, the or do we need the traditions at all in order to make that journey, since we already have what we need? And then we can look at the traditions and we can look at uh, the whole realm of psychology and the arts, and we can ask ourselves, you know, for me, what what is going to be the gate to completely unlock who I am as a person and help me go as far as as I'm uh, called to in my life? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and but of course, the, the idea that everything in our daily lives is, uh, to quote my good friend Ramdas grist for the mill. I love that little expression. And so everything that comes to us, we can use on a day-to-day -day basis to help transform ourselves, I think is, is, is an excellent uh, attitude and perspective, which leads me, can you talk a little bit about how we do change our perspective? I mean, once we realize that we are, that there is another dimension outside of mind and senses and so on, how and and our perspective on a day-to-day -day basis is coming from that place, which is why 
we have fear, we have separation, we have non-connection with things around us and people around us. What are the first steps that, that you would recommend once you realize that, how to firmly establish yourself in a, in a perspective that um, uh, relates to our true nature? Well, I think the first thing is uh, what you already mentioned is that we need to have the understanding that, uh, as Ramdas says, that everything that happens in our life is grist for the mill. But having that understanding, um, I think <clears throat> one of the places that we fall down in our spiritual life in modern culture is many people feel that simply having the understanding is enough. And I, so I think the second step is to, uh, to realize that, yes, theoretically it's true. Everything is, is theoretically grist for the mill. But the, we have to begin to realize that the way we operate is not that way. Usually, everything that comes up becomes grist for the ego. And, you know, we tend to, uh, you know, because life is so fundamentally open and groundless and raw and intense, we have to start by acknowledging all the ways in which we depart from that into our habitual patterns I think, you know, one of the great metaphors in modern culture for understanding that process of exiting from our basic, um, what I would say, enlightened human experience is addiction. And we can talk about addictions um, in a very universal way as anything that we do that uh, is, is a way of separating and pushing away and uh, ignoring our basic human experience and it can be food, it can be the internet, it can be uh, shopping, it can be overwork, <clears throat> but it's also psychological. There's a wonderful book called um, When Anger Hurts. I don't know if you've seen that book. No. Uh, it's a wonderful book about anger, actually, as an addiction. And uh, mm -hmm. it points to the fact, for example, uh, that uh, anger, it's, it's now been found, is inevitably... A, an addictive response to underlying feelings that are too unpleasant, that we don't want to feel and we don't, uh, we don't feel capable of feeling. And what we do is we exit into a, a, a oppositional and energized state that we call anger. Irritation, anger, irritability, impatience are all addictive responses to underlying um, enlightened, illuminated human experience. So I think, you know, the, the first step is we have to really face up to all the ways we run away. <clears throat> and then we can take on a discipline once we see, okay, there's some serious work to do. Right. You've just gone to the core, Reggie, of my uh, issue right off the bat. i got to go get this book. Okay. <laughs> Anger yeah, and the, the responses therein. And the, the anger, I mean, many, many of us, you know, that is a primal thing that we we deal with, I, I think. Uh, it's, it's pretty much an across-the-board thing. And I tell people, well, once you get into it and you react, knee-jerk react, yeah. then you pull in every other aspect of dissatisfaction or hurt or pain in your life and you deposit it into that moment. You've so got true. to realize that. It is so true. You know, it's, uh, so just to let you know, because we talked about uh, uh, Trump or Rinpoche, 
And uh, so we were in India when you met him at Taylor's Tiger, right? In Barnett? Yeah. 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 I'm yeah. from Canada, so we live just over the border in Quebec, literally uh, near Burlington. So very close to Tail. And um, but while you, I went to India in 1970 after I met Ram Das, and it was like, okay, you met this person. I'm gonna go too, even though he said there's no way you can. So some <laughs> of us did make it over there. Actually, ended up a couple hundred of us uh, over the three and a half year period before he left. And uh, but then we came back, and Ramdas and I actually came back around the same time, about uh, a year and a half to two years later, mm-hmm. year and three quarter. We were back in mid seventy two, mm. and one of the first things we did, he would he, so he came to visit. My whole family went to India, became uh, devotees. Uh, he wow. pulled us all over, so it's a kind of an unusual thing. And we had this; it was a bit of a center because everybody would come to to my dad's place and we would all get in the cars and go over to tail of the tiger and, yeah. and wow. so we may have actually crossed paths there at yeah. that point and the yeah. interesting thing so uh i think you might remember there was a famous uh, it's actually you can see the video with with trumpa and ramdas where um trumpa asked ramdas to tom, come up and they were he was talking about the warrior and he was talking about Casanadas' book, Carlos Casanadas. Yeah. By the way, everybody, that's a, another whole series for you to, to get into if you haven't, Way of the Yaki. Uh, and, uh, and he came up, and it was just a beautiful moment. Of course, Trumpa mercilessly teased Ramdas. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I think you must have been at Naropa a couple mm-hmm. of years later in 74, oh, yeah. right? And you saw all yeah. of that. Even yeah. I was not there at that time. <clears throat> but I was at this other thing and where he sat down and, and uh, he was smoking a cigarette. And Ramdas had his eyes closed. And he tapped the ashes onto his head as a kind of ash blessing. I don't right. know if you remember. It was really a <laughs> oh, yeah. really funny moment. So the, the teasing was around. This is something to talk about a little bit because... Uh, we have been closely um, integrated. I mean, Neem Karoli Baba was, yes, he was a Hindu, but uh, it, it, his whole thing day to day was he'd point his finger and go, "All one. There is only one." Right, yeah. and the and the and he actually he didn't send me, but he you talked about how Trungpa knew what your deepest. Uh, things were about where you should go, what you should do, and so on. And, of course, Maharaji, as we called him, uh, was very much the same. And I went to see him one day, and it's a whole long story, which I won't get into the details of, and I've told on this podcast. But just to tell you, he said, you're going to have, have you had the teachings of a Tibetan Lama? Mm. And I said, no, I never even met a Tibetan. He said, no, teachings you you went you had the teachings he gave you 40 minutes of teachings tibet lama he yelling at me i'm like no i don't know <laughs> next day i went to uh, delhi to get a passport a new passport and yeah. i i happened to know the the actually it was james george you may know who james george is he was a, a well-known Oops, buddhist yeah. Yeah. yeah so he invited me to lunch and then i said hey is it true that you're letting canada because i'm canadian is letting tibetans yeah. in he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, and he motioned his hand, and out of a room walked Kalu Rinpoche and a retinue of monks. Wow. I mean, I just, I almost fainted. 
Okay. Well, First of all, how did he know? Uh, you know. And second of all, I'm in the presence of this exalted, one of the great lamas of the last century. Yeah. And he took me in a room, and there was some crazy Canadian uh, people interviewing him. And he said he was. They asked him what he thought about uh, Christianity. <laughs> I don't know anything about Christianity. He just <laughs> he was bored, right? And then they said, "Why don't you ask a question?" And as soon as they said that, he sat up. And Darshan, I mean, total presence, contacted me and gave me, I asked him some questions about meditation and being in, which is really, was very important for me. I can, being in a cave or being in, I've been up in the foothills with my guru and I've been in, in deep meditation. We went up to a place where there was nobody, Ram Das and I and Krishnas and a couple other people. And now I'm in the city. What the hell do I do? Do I have to be in the cave to be able to get present, to be present? And yeah. he gave me the teachings about the Siddhas of India who all became realized through work. You do yeah. not have to go into a cave. And it was a powerful teaching for me. Yeah. And so from that time on, not just me, but many of us were yeah. involved in Buddhist teachings. And then we get to Trungpa, and there he is mercilessly teasing Ramdas and us uh, about our light and love attitude, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, yet we all, we had fundamental uh, Vipassana practice, and and so on and so forth. And it it uh, Ramdas interacted with him very closely for years yeah. over yeah. the time through Naropa and so on. And he was a major teacher for us. Uh, yeah. So yeah. that's why he's a very present part of our podcast that we do here. And um, and just sharing sharing. Can you just share something of your personal experience? I mean, just this is for me and hopefully everybody out there. Just what it was like being with 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 Trungpa. And, and I, I just I'm reading J Jeremy Hayward's book, by the way, on, yeah. on Trungpa. The wonderful book, and I'm sure that's somebody you know quite well. Um, but can you just talk about a little bit about your personal experience with uh, Trungpa Rinpoche? Well, um, coming back to your point, uh, it was uh, for me. I'm just speaking my own experience, but uh, the first interview we had, he was sweet. He was incredibly encouraging. He was incredibly loving. And then largely, it was over. And my experience of being around him was that I, for the first three or four years, I was terrified. <laughs> because, you know, I think what he did with Rondas, he did with all of us. I mean, if you came in the room and you thought you had anything together, somehow he, he knew where it was and he would go for it. If, if you came in and you thought you were a Buddhist, he was going to expose it. And the interesting thing about him was, uh, you know, you would go, you'd go down to lunch at Tail the Tiger, and we had these uh, picnic tables. You know, we didn't really have actual tables. We, you know how the, the seats are built into the wood yeah. picnic tables? So we'd sit there, and in the beginning, naive me, I would go, I'd go down, Rimshay would be there eating, and there'd be nobody around him, and I'd go, hey, this is my chance to be with <laughs> So I go sit down next to him, and and it was like I, I had just sat down to the noonday next to the noonday sun, and I was terrified by what he might do because he, in his space, somehow whatever your little trip was, it was going to be exposed, and it might be him, and it might come from somebody else, but you were not safe at any time around him. So it was a very very terrifying experience to. Uh, for me to be in his presence because I was inevitably dismantled to a level that I didn't even know 
existed in myself. He was, uh, he never, you know, he was relentless. And he was, I would say he was not a Buddhist. He wasn't anything. And because he was so free of any kind of identification or role in his own mind, he was, he was a free agent and he was able to really, um, do the, 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 his thing was the ego's a problem and we're going to cut through it. And we are going to expose all the little games and hypocrisies and self-deceptions. And he did it, you know, he could do it just by looking at you. So that was my basic experience for, for several years. And a lot of people, um, you know, experienced that most people did, and they actually left and I was very, very sympathetic why they didn't stay and study with him because he was such a difficult person. But what I found was, first of all, as I'm sure you felt, I felt in my life I'd run out of options. I felt this was my last card. And if I leave this guy, I'm leaving myself. So there was that kind of a perspective. And the other one was going through these experiences with him. On the other side, you were a different person. You were transformed. I mean, it was it was going to hell and back every time I, I met him. But that really caught me and it caught a lot of people. Wow, this is a transformative situation being with this guy. And I'm going to hang in there, even though it's a lot of the time it's it's like hell and it's a nightmare. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, this is so parallel to my own and our experience with Neem Karoli Baba. But I'll tell you one. I was at a party in Boston. Okay. Mm. And he, mm-hmm. where he was, uh, yeah. it was around uh, 74, I believe, mm-hmm. um, before Naropa. And I have this moment that is indelible in me where I looked across the room at him. I mean, I thought, it's a silly party. And he's sitting there and he's got his drink and food and a plate or whatever it was, right? Yeah. yeah. I looked across the room and he looked back at me. And that moment was was everything in terms of my yeah. any, my relationship with him. I never had a personal interview with him. It was always in public. Yeah. I never had the courage to go sit at that picnic table with him in that moment yeah. uh, or just didn't appear. You know, it didn't happen for me. That happened. But that's uh, it. That was it. That was the whole thing right there. Yeah. Yeah. So which, you, you met him. And yeah, exactly. You, was, you got the transmission. That was it. Yeah. In that moment. And it stayed with me. I mean, very much like, you know, I there's so many moments of I can uh, I don't have to recall being with Neem Karoli Baba. But what you're saying is very uh, right on about the dissembling of one's eagle. And that really is what this is all about. That is what it was about. People say, oh, you were with this great saint in India, Maharaji, who is like not a, a, he was a nothing. I mean, the best uh, example, and I want to talk about this a little further, is uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, who I'm sure you know. Um, I I said to her on a podcast, you've been around Ramdas forever, you know, and you know, this path is not, uh, you know, the path of dualistic bhakti yoga is not your thing. But so what do you think of Neem Karoli Baba? What is your relationship? You've been around him. It's not nothing. And she said, whenever I look at a picture and I look in his eyes, I see emptiness. Yeah. And that said to me, okay, yeah, that's what we got. But yeah. this, there's one part of this is kind of circling back here in uh, Touching Enlightenment. You talk about falling apart is as a deeply somatic experience of the body yeah. experience. Yeah. And um, 
it it basically destroys concepts of me, quote unquote, and the world, quote unquote. And when I read that in the book, I just thought to myself, this is what we experienced. As, as again, people think, oh, wonderful, you're in this love bucket with, you know, love and light bucket with Nicarola <laughs> right. Bob. Lucky you, right? Yeah. Not, nothing to do with the facts. Some yep. of the, I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, you know, the, 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 the mirror, the purity of the mirror, and the fact that this there was nothing inside this being but doing what was necessary to free you. Yeah. And, and I love the word you just used, relentless. Yeah. And, and I knew that about Trumpa as well, just being around him. And, yeah. But that aspect, let's talk about that, or do talk, Reggie, about that, about um, it's okay to fall apart, it's 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 not something to run away from and how do we kind of make friends with that well i think that's why uh i think the the experience of falling apart if you're not deeply grounded in your body uh it can be uh very destabilizing in, in not in a healthy way and I think uh, I was just talking with uh, my therapist. I have this wonderful uh, Hakomi therapist that I've been working with for you know, eight or nine years. And we, this morning we were just actually talking about how um, when we practice the path of spirituality, we are opening up all of the dark prisons where all of those damaged parts of ourselves have been living you know, out of sight. And when those beings, which are, you know, aspects of ourself come to the surface, we get blown, we can be blown out of the water. And that's why spirituality uh, can be dangerous because, you know, the ego is overwhelmed. The only recourse is uh, in the Vajrayana tradition is the body. And the more stuff comes up, the deeper you go into the body. And when you go into the body, from the body's point of view, there's no problem. The body is the unconscious. And so, um, you know, when those gates are opened, if you're deeply aligned with your body and your awareness is rooted in your body, then you, you can handle and you can manage the experience of falling apart. F what falls apart isn't the body, and it's not your psyche, but it's your conscious ego orientation. If you're wholly identified with your ego orientation, falling apart is devastating. It's death. But if you're uh, if you do if you're a Vajrayana student or you just do these somatic practices that are widespread in all the traditions, then the experience of falling apart really is, an, uh, is a gateway for you, and it's a, something to be welcomed with joy. Mm. I think it's a good time now uh, to really uh, explain uh, in as down to earth, obviously, which you already are, um, uh, terms somatic experience and practice and uh, even even the word somatic i think people might be not that aware of mm -hmm. well uh buddhism of course has many many different approaches some of them are, are very mental some of them are conceptual um and some of them are somatic which means rooted in the body soma is the greek word for body and in the Vajrayana tradition, which seeks to um, unlock all of the prisoners and free them in our psyche, in our state of being, the somatic approach or the approach of 
working with the body directly, that that's the path. Now, if we want to talk about what is the view of somatic meditation, it's that the this human body of ours is uh, is already in a state of enlightenment, or the body is already awakened, and that underneath the conceptual overlays of our conscious mind, there is the what we call the basic nature or the Buddha nature, our body is uh, it's illuminated, it's free, it's alive, and it's filled with wisdom. So the purpose of Vajrayana Buddhism is not to create enlightenment, but it's to tap in to the awakening that already exists in our body. So it's a very simple process of, um, of shedding all of the things that cover over that awakened body of ours. Hmm. And in actual practice, how do you uh, work with your students to introduce them to the actual practice of going within? Well, I've, uh, you probably haven't been on the Dharma Ocean website, um, at least as far as this goes, but there's a whole journey that we, that I offer. And the first step is called, uh, meditating with the body. And in that, we, I teach students and we teach students about 20 somatic protocols. And I'll give you an example. And, you know, for the first year or two, they study with me. That's what they do. They simply work with these protocols. Now, what, what, what do they look like? <clears throat> the very first one um, is a practice called 10 points practice where you lie on the ground and you begin to develop awareness of different parts of your body. It's similar to what Goenka does and Vipassana does, but it goes much, much further because the first step, for example, is to become aware of sensations, say, in your toes. And the second step is to begin to identify tension in your toes. And, and you work with your whole body this way. And then the next thing is once you identify tension, you put your awareness within it. And that gives you the ability to release unconscious tension, strangely enough. The more the tension opens, the more the body opens, and you begin to realize that every part of your body is, uh, is it's very bright, it's very open, it's very free, and it's filled with wisdom which begins to flow into your conscious mind. But it's a very literal practice. You're working with your toes, you're working with your feet, you're working with your lower leg and your knees and your thighs. You're working with your uh, lower belly. You're working with your organs. And it's, you can spend an hour going through this process. That's just one of these 20 protocols. What happens, you know, we have these uh, structures in our brain, the corpus callosum and other structures that mediate experience between the conscious mind or the, uh, the left brain and then the, uh, the, larger field of awareness that is the body, the right brain and the, the overall soma. And for modern people, those structures that, that allow communication of the body to translate or to transmit its information to the conscious mind are largely atrophied. Mm. So what happens in these practices is you begin to develop the capacity in your consciousness to know what's going on in your body and to actually be able to receive the direction and guidance and wisdom of the body. So it's very, very literal. Another um, important one is 
what we call yin breathing, which is breathing into the lower belly. And, you know, it's what's called the lower Dantian in Taoism and Nahara in Zen Buddhism. Um, what we do is you spend dozens and dozens and dozens of hours breathing into the lower belly and beginning to discover the vast space that's actually there. And you, again, develop the neurological capacity to be in touch in that way. So these are very literal practices. And like I said, people spend one to two, three years exactly. just doing them. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, DharmaOcean.org, everybody, uh, is uh, Reggie's uh, everything that you would need to know about him. And uh, these teachings are available there, I am assuming, Reggie? Uh, the, these yeah. meditations that you're speaking of right now. Yeah, they are. There's, there's uh, a tremendous amount of uh, this material is available free. You know, if you go down to that website, wonderful, yeah. and we'll everybody will have that up on uh, on mind rolling on the page, so you can have a link to that. I'm I'm now I'm going to ask you something because this this relates to exactly what you've described here, mm. and in your book you tell a story that is so powerful, and I, I I'd love for you to tell it uh, around that one moment. Uh, it's around the abandonment that you had from your mom as a baby, and and what ensued. Uh, over a period of time. Do you mind telling that? Uh, I'm sure you've, it's been a can, lot. Can, can you remind me what, what was the key point? Um, that, um, that just that deep unraveling that you had uh, when you were uh, left in the crib to cry. Yeah. And what happened in, you, you know, you had no idea of the depth of that, and this directly relates with the somatic practices who uh, un that we would say that they would help to release that. In this case, I'm not sure what the trigger f was for you. I think it was in a retreat. I think you were in a retreat at the time, and yes. this happened. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I had uh, a sort of vague knowledge about my childhood, and uh, the stories have been told that, uh, you know, at that time people read uh, Dr. Spock, and he said, you're supposed to let, I'm sure you went through this, you're supposed to let babies cry. It's good for them. And my mother was uh, always just wanted to get it perfect, you know. So um, that's what they did. But I didn't think much about it. And one day I was in a retreat. And actually, strangely enough, uh, there was a, one of my students was doing some energy work with me. So that, that kind of set it off. And all of a sudden, I was, I was in the crib. And I was... Uh, I felt uh, many things I had never touched before. One of them was incredible um, despair and hopelessness at being left alone. And it was my world. Everywhere I looked from that point of view, you know, lying there on the table, it was life was hopeless. No one was there. It was black. It was dark. And I just wanted to die. And I started... And then the next thing that came up, I'm, I'm trying to remember back because I haven't uh, even thought about this in uh, quite a while. Yeah. The next thing that came up was unbelievable rage, mm -hmm. like cosmic rage against my mother. Mm -hmm. And so for the next three or four hours, I think it was, I was alternately, and this is not me, you know, this is not my style. <laughs> I, was, I was crying, I was weeping, I was screaming with rage, I hate you, I hate you. And my poor wife and one of my daughters was actually in the house, and they left. 
That's okay. Thank you. And they just felt like, you know, with, with, this is, we, we can't deal with this. And uh, to her credit, the body worker hung in there with me. And uh, it was an incredibly important moment because um, all my life I have been um, a, a kind of irritable person. I've been a very mistrustful person. I have, uh, I'm always ready for, you know, not, not physical fight, but I'm always kind of ready for the next challenge. And there's a kind of edge. And finally, I understood where it came from. It was so helpful to me. And I'll tell you something. That person, you know, that small child I met later, actually, I met several times. And I can I tell you a short story about the latest meeting? Hmm. I was in retreat again. This was a couple of years ago. And the door was locked in my retreat room. This is down in Creston. We have this little retreat room at the top of the house. I was in the, in retreat by myself in the house. The door was locked. I hope I can do this. Um, and all of a sudden, the door burst open. And there was a, a very dark man kneeling at the top of the stairs. And he held out his arms to me, and in his face was the most unbelievable pain and suffering and hopelessness and despair. And he, his thing, the way he looked at me was like, help me, help me, help me. I have no other hope. You have to help me. And he didn't understand his suffering, why he had suffered so much. And I pulled him into the room, because what, what else could I do? My first thing was, what are you doing here? I'm on retreat. Get away. Get out of here. And then I, he wasn't going anywhere. So I pulled him in and I hugged him and he wept uncontrollably. And what I understood later was that man was that little child. And he was, he was uh, this little child that had never grown up emotionally. He was, uh, he was in his fifties, but he was very, very dark. And it was like this incredibly primitive, tortured state of mind. So that journey, I mean, that was like 30 years later. So that journey um, continues. It's so interesting. But, but something changed there. And now when I get irritable or angry or I feel despair, I actually invite him to come back in. Like, come, come to me now and we're going to sit down here and we're going to be together. So it, it, that, that experience you described really was the start of an incredibly important unfolding for me. Amazing. Thank yeah. you, Richard. Yeah, that's amazing, and 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 we all have this going on, and yeah, we do. And the willingness to approach it and invite it is uh, courage. I guess that's been a, a big theme for us lately, talking about courage. Uh, and uh, I I had a did something with uh, Lama Tsultram Alioni recently, and. And she, you know, there's a beautiful thing in, in Tibetan, it's um, the chode practice, I guess, uh, and yeah. in, inviting uh, your demons and so on and so forth. That um, and People are scared to go there because that seems like an esoteric Tibetan practice. And again, for people who are not Buddhists or not anythings, uh, this still this we she brought it down as uh, to as as much in, in you know change the vernacular so it wasn't so scary, but it is such an important thing and I know it's very much uh, uh, part of uh, 
what you're what you what you teach and 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 around somatic uh, process and so on. So. Um, uh, I just suggest to people, please do get in ch touch. And, and these practices that Reggie is uh, talking about, um, you don't need to be a Tibetan Buddhist to take advantage. We all have this this deep, deep stuff in us. Uh, I mean, it used to come out in Goenka courses that we took. I yeah. mean, you know, and, and that's why when I read uh, the book and, and, and really understood what you were talking about, I saw, oh, Wow, this is something I am utilizing. Yeah. Maybe, well, for me, it's in a major way. You know, just the sweeping that's involved with the vipassana. You know, not the samatha part, but the insight part. And so, uh, I highly recommend this to everybody. You um, know, one thing along those lines. Yeah. Um, sure, practice is a natural human process, and what's happened is that but Buddhist tradition has taken. Uh, and it's not a bad thing, but they've taken what is a natural human process and they've ritualized it and they've given, you know, you've given a way to relate ritually, but not only do you not need it, if you work with yourself at the level we're talking about and you're really present within your body, the body, the body, to work with the body is true practice in the deepest sense of the word. And you do meet your own demons. You're not visualizing something. Your demons you know, after a while, they will show up and they are calling to be fed and not just to be fed, but to love, be loved. Mm -hmm. So I would emphasize not only do people not need the other practice, the more um, integrity they have in working with the depth of their own bodies and their own state of being, the more true practice is just a natural uh, process of life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Ram Das just, free, just recently talked about, we just did a... Uh, wonderful retreat in Maui <clears throat> and uh, Sharon Salzberg was there and Krishna mm -hmm. we had a lovely time but at one point I think in Ramdas answering a question um, about dealing with really tough thoughts that scare you mm -hmm. and he said well the first thing I do is when I'm having thoughts that are untoward shall we say I, I say to myself what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And then he said, and if they really get over the top, well, there's only one thing to do. I love you to death. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's, uh, mm -hmm. I, I love that. And it's parallel to everything that we're talking about here. Um, yeah. The um, one other thing that's really part, and that's from the book, um, we talk, I think you talk about rather the Yogacara school. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we have any experience of the external world, particularly of other people, we are meeting our own shadow. I have just had, a, I just came back from this retreat, all in a mm -hmm. wonderful spot, mm -hmm. and suddenly a bunch of people that I work with met their shadows. And, uh, and as a result, suddenly I'm meeting my shadow, and we're <laughs> all... All these shadows are interacting. And um, how, how do you talk to people about giving them s some way to have awareness about just what this is? That, that when you're reacting to phenomena and, most, and mostly around people, that you've got to be able to look inside and see you know, where, this is, where this is coming from, where it's emanating. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think the basic uh, Yogacara view is that um, life is this uh, is beautiful, this beautiful unfolding of uh, ourselves. And anything that happens in life, whether it's a person or a situation, is uh, it's a part of ourselves that we're, we need to meet and we need to integrate back in. We never, we never, uh, nothing ever happens that's irrelevant. So that's the first thing. At that point, you take on, you have to take ownership for it. If I meet somebody and I hate them, it's actually, you know, the view is it's, it's part of myself. And the reason I'm upset about it is because it's a part of myself that I don't love. So you start off with, I think you have to just have the basic attitude of sacredness. You know, what comes to you is coming to bring you something. It's coming and bringing you the gift of themselves, even if it's somebody you loathe. And, um, and then number two is, again, we always come back to the practice. You sit down, and here's a, here's a very interesting uh, step. When you are in your body and you look, you see how your body sees the enemy the, you know, the body, as you know, is non-judgmental, and it doesn't filter. So we have to tap into the, the way the body knows very well why this person has come, and the body automatically loves everything. That's the body, the nature of the body is love. And when we do that practice, uh, it's very straightforward. Now, you may not want to. There are a lot of times I am so pissed off at somebody, I will not sit down and do the practice because I know what's going to happen, and I don't want to go there. <laughs> I want to sit there and hate them. But, you know, once I'm willing to do it, it's a very straightforward process. You sit down, like with my wife, I'll sit down and I just feel into my body and I see her, Caroline, and I see that all the stuff that I'm, you know, revved up about is like bullshit. And she's just there and she's herself and it's very beautiful. So it's a very simple somatic process. Mm. Give me a little, little bit more here. Are you using breath to, uh, to actually conscious breath, uh, breathing in and out of the diaphragm to actually get, get out of that place where you just want to haul off and uh, become, uh, <laughs> you know what? Uh, no, uh, in this case, we're working with the heart, and uh, we have a a whole, actually, it's a whole series of its of their own protocols of um, opening the heart, breathing into the heart, beginning to find the blockages in the heart, uh, learning how to enter into the, the tensions and blockages in the armor, learning how to release the armor, and learning how to open the heart into its own infinite love. And so, you know, the instruction, you know, that I give myself is, and my students, when we're in a situational conflict, we need to sit down and we need to go through that process and come into our heart. And the heart's view, as you know, much better than I do, that from the, the point of view of our heart, um, there's only universal love. There's no hatred and there's no opposition and there's no separation. So we, we need to come into that space. But again, working with the body and working directly with the physical heart to begin with, you know, the heart center is the gateway for us into it. Mm, beautiful. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I think I need another hour, Reggie. We'll have to come back to you. Um, but there's uh, there's something that everybody is dealing with right now, and it's it's our and you you deal with it's funny because I don't know you wrote this particular book I think eight years ago right two thousand seven something like yeah that. yeah um, 
and you talked about the global crisis we're in. I think it's been exacerbated uh, many times over since then, and certainly yeah. in the with what's gone on with uh, the terrorist situation uh, in the last uh, short while, and what is going on politically and the vast polarization that is going on. And there's one thing you write about. Uh, you say, because of the big lie of modern culture, of the possibility of ultimate fulfillment through entertainment, distraction, or materialism, and because of how tightly and stubbornly it is clung to, we can't really talk to anyone about what is actually going on, and we certainly seem to have a large difficulty talking to each other. G give us a little bit of perspective on, I, I mean, especially the polarization. I, I mean, I have been practicing for a long time, and, uh, you know, just directly, when you see Trump, as an example, he's a, uh, Ramdas, what his method, by the way, is, he, he had a picture of George W. on his puja table. <laughs> Hi, George, you know, and, yeah. and he'd get to the place where, through, through the spiritual heart, through the fact that we all only want love, no matter who we are. Yeah. But it is so very difficult uh, in in so many different ways. How do you even approach not falling into this polarization of us and them? Uh, there's a, a wonderful book written by Alice Miller called For Your Own Good. And half of the book deals with Hitler's childhood. Hmm. And I, you know, we, I don't need to go into detail, but once you read that uh, that particular part of the book, you you feel such unbelievable uh, sorrow for what that person went through, and you understand fully why you know he was the way he was. Hmm. So I think, just on a personal level, the more we know about about the people on the other side, Trump, for example, the more insight we have into his psyche and the amount of suffering that he experiences all the time, you know, to be as disconnected as he is, it gives us some kind of ground to, and I'm talking about also people who are very close to us that, you know, for whom we feel a lot of antipathy. Um, the more understanding we have, then the more we're able to uh, see them, you know, and see their journey and see that fundamentally they're no different from us. But I think at the same time, we have to also understand that modern in modern culture we are uh we become ideologues um and but by that i mean we are so separate from our human experience and from the ordinariness of human life that we experience as, as physical incarnational beings we're so disconnected that we now believe the constructed and very one-sided realities of our thinking mind. And most, as you know, most people in the world today really um, believe that what they think is real. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, the, the tremendous danger we have in our society is that we are living more and more and more and more um, in a disconnected virtual world where ideas and uh, images on a screen are taken for reality itself. We just had a situation in Colorado where two 14-year-old girls were plotting 
to go into their school. I mean, nothing happened. It was stopped and, and you know, kill people. And they just really didn't know the difference between, you know, the reality of that and what they saw in the movies and what they saw on screens. So, you know, I think our challenge as a culture is somehow we are going to have to find a way to come back uh, and, and lead people back into their actual human experience. And uh, the fear is that we're going in the opposite direction. You know, we know, I don't know if you read Nicholas Carr's book and some of the other books on the impact of the internet on the human brain, but what happens is people become incapable of even knowing what they experience. And that's, that's crazy making. I mean, that's a yeah. definition of insanity in the psychological world. Yeah. So, um, you know, individually, I think we can work with George W. and uh, other people uh, in our own minds. But the, the real problem is how we're going to shift the culture, because uh, let's face it, the earth is going to be around and habitable for, you know, another couple million years. But the way we're going, we're not going to be part of it. Yeah. Yep. Well, Reggie, this has been fantastic. But before we part, maybe uh, I'd love for you to, to give me and everybody who's listening right now just a, a, perhaps a little practice, just a few minutes um, around what we can do. Like just, oh, it's the middle of the day and I'm lost and I just want to get present. Okay, you tell me how many minutes I can have for this. Whatever, yeah, in the next, yeah, how about a five-minuter? That's what I was thinking. Let's do it. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, if you're in a place where you can lie down, that would be great. Uh, lie down on the floor, um, you know, put your knees up and just be comfortable, or you can sit in a chair and lean back and just be really comfortable. And then we're going to begin to pay attention to our lower belly. Find a spot, pick a spot midway between your perineum and your navel. And it's going to be in the middle of the body, between front and back, left and right. And begin to visualize that you're bringing the breath into that place. Now, we're not breathing down from our nose through our lungs down into our lower belly. We're breathing directly into our lower belly. So it's as almost as if this spot you've picked is a nostril and you're breathing in through that place. So just let's take a minute and begin to feel, try to feel the breath coming in on the in-breath. On the in-breath, visualize that there's a balloon in your lower belly that is inflating on the in-breath. So on the in-breath, inflate. Imagine, feel. You can feel the balloon inflating. And on the out-breath, visualize the balloon deflating. So let's just do four or five breaths. In-breath. Inflate the balloon in the lower belly. Out breath, deflate.
If your mind wanders, just come back to the visualization of inflating the balloon on the in-breath and deflating on the out-breath. What we're doing here is bringing the inner breath or the prana into the lower belly and you can actually feel it physically. So on the in-breath, see if you can feel a little spot of brightness or coolness just where you're breathing in. See if you can feel that. As you do so, let your breath slow down and see if you can feel your body relaxing all around this lower belly process because the body is going to start relaxing just by itself. See if you can feel that. So now on the in-breath, imagine that you're dissolving your mind into that breath in the lower belly. So you're breathing in and you're dissolving your mind, you're dissolving any sensations in your body, any thinking, any feelings, everything going on in your universe. On the in-breath, you're dissolving it into that point where you're breathing in, just folding it all in. And dissolving into the lower belly. So we're bringing all the peripheral attention into the lower belly on the in-breath. As we're doing this, a space is going to open up in the lower belly. So see if you can feel that you're dissolving and you're letting go. And at the same time, there's a spaciousness that begins to develop in the lower belly. Letting go, dissolving, releasing everything into the lower belly and the in-breath. And then things down there become very peaceful and very open and very spacious. See if you can feel that. And then finally, on the in-breath, surrender yourself into the space of the lower belly. Just give it up, just let go, and let yourself dissolve into the space in the lower belly.
go, let go, release. And as you do this, you may notice that any sense of the boundary between your body and external space is not there. When we touch the space in the lower belly, we're touching a space that is infinite, boundless, goes on forever. And in releasing into that space, we experience true freedom. So breathing, letting go, emptying, and looking at how it is in the lower belly. When we do this, we realize at the deepest level of our body, at the very core of our being, we're free and we've always been free. And the imprisonment we create for ourselves moment by moment is just a dream and it's unnecessary. And from this place, we can arise in our life with true openness toward the world and true love for all the creatures that are the people, the animals, this earth of ours and the vast limitless universe with its billions of galaxies and its endless vistas. So we'll just take a moment now and have a few more breaths into the lower belly. And form the intention to come back here as often as we can, and especially when we're lost. Very good. Well, thank you for letting me share that. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Reggie. Uh, by the way, hopefully, if you're driving, you're going to stop at the meditation and do that at home. And we're not going to do it in the car, everybody. Got a lot of people listening to podcasts in the car. I was thinking I know, about that in that moment. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. So, Reggie Ray, dharmaocean.org. Reggie has some fabulous books, amongst them what uh, we've been pulling from today and talking about touching enlightenment. There's also Secret of the Vajra World and uh, in the presence of masters. And I hadn't even get to the point where I wanted to hear your experiences with the 16th Karmapa and with Ken, you met uh, Kensi Rinpoche, right? Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche? Sure. Who, 
I mean, I, I it's if I have any disappointment, I mean, I have been very fortunate in my life, so I have nothing to talk about. But it would be Dilgo Kenzie Rinpoche. I mean, he's just so. Uh, please go there and share Reggie's teachings and books and meditations and. Uh, and again, uh, thank you so much uh, for being here, uh, Reggie, on uh, Mind Rolling. And everybody go to MindPod Network and share all of the wonderful teachers that, uh, that we have. And, you know, we're, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, get after Reggie, actually, to, to, to join us and get some of your talks up here on, Mind, on MindPod, too. So wonderful, wonderful. Uh, thank you again. And uh, we're, you'll, you're going to hear from me sooner than later, Reggie. That's great. Well, it's wonderful to meet you. I hope we can keep going. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank okay. you. Take care. Thank you.